Last week, we covered the omniscience of God, which basically, as I, as I defined it, just means God knows everything. Uh, he knows everything in the past. He knows everything in the present. He knows everything in the future. Uh, he knows our actions. He knows our thoughts. Uh, God has uh, total knowledge. There is nothing outside of his, uh, his knowledge. Today, we're going to move on from that to talk about the omnisapience of God. Uh, God is omnisapient, which uh, is just a fancy word for saying he is all-wise, um, which I could have just said that, but omnisapient sounds better, and it, it fits with all the other omnis. Uh, so the omnisapience of God, God is all-wise. Um, and again, this builds on what we talked about last week. God knows everything. He has uh, knowledge of, of everything that there is to know. And what we're saying today is he perfectly employs his knowledge in the ways best suited to manifesting his glory and accomplishing his purposes. Um, so he knows everything and he utilizes that knowledge in the wisest ways possible. Uh, Wayne Grudem defines this as, in his Systematic Theology, God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. And the more I, I thought about that, I think that's a really good definition. Um, that he has the best goals and that he also, that he utilizes the wisest means to accomplish those goals. Romans 16, verse 27, uh, Paul says, To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And so he is only wise in the sense that God has a totality of wisdom. Job 12, verse 12, Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. With God our wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. Uh, we've talked about already the eternality of God, and what Job is saying there uh, is basically that the eternality of God is the grounds for his wisdom. In other words, we even recognize among ourselves that people that have been around a while tend to be wiser. I know that's not a hard and fast rule, but generally speaking, uh, those who have gone through experiences, who have lived a while, there's wisdom with age. And so what Job is saying is that the fact that God is eternal, right? that he's, he's always existed, is one reason we can be confident in his wisdom. He has more age, more experience uh, than any other being. And if that's true, uh, if it's true that even uh, you know, aged humans are considered to be wiser by younger, generally speaking, uh, how much wisdom would somebody who has lived forever have? Um, so God is all wise. We see God's wisdom in several different ways. I'm just going to cover a few here. Number one is we see God's wisdom in creation. Psalm 104, verse 24. O oh Lord, how, manif um, how manifold are, are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Again, Proverbs 3, verse 19. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. And so there uh, you see a little bit more specifically uh, ways in which God's wisdom is manifold in creation, and what he's pointing out there is the water cycle, right? The fact that, uh, you know, the, the, the deeps refers to the oceans, the clouds dropping the dew. The systems and order of our universe um, give evidence to a wise creator. Jeremiah 10, verse 12, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. So the complex ordering of the universe is evidence of the wisdom of God. Next, uh, we see his wisdom in redemption. 1 Corinthians one twenty one, Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, 
The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And so there's a lot packed in those uh, dense sentences. But the point I'm making here is that... Um, God's wisdom is expressed in the redemption of, uh, of his people. And so what that means is that God utilizes the wisest means to accomplish redemption, and, and namely, in, in this text, the preaching of the gospel. So God is infinitely wise because he has limitless knowledge, and he's perfectly good. Part of what it means to be wise is to consider all possible outcomes, uh, to have foresight, and God knows everything, including everything in the future. Therefore, he has, uh, he's in a unique position to make wise choices. Sometimes we think we're making a wise choice in the moment, uh, but some unforeseen circumstance in the future, uh, turns out we didn't make the best choice. Um, God never has that situation because God knows everything perfectly. And so having complete knowledge is really the only way to always make wise choices. Uh, you and I don't have the capability of always being wise, but uh, God is in a, in a unique position to do such. So God never makes mistakes uh, because he sees everything in the future. There's two parts uh, to the definition Grudem gave of God's omnisapience. First, that God always acts toward the wisest ends. Um, Stephen Charnock in The Existence and Attributes of God, he writes on this, says the chiefest part of prudence is in fixing a right end and in choosing fit means and directing them to that scope. To shoot at random, <laughs> kind of reminds me of some things that happened here this week. Uh, to, to shoot at random is a mark of folly, as he is the wisest man that hath the noblest end and fittest means. So God is infinitely wise, as he is the most excellent being, so he hath the most excellent end. And so uh, he's pointing out there that the most crucial part of wisdom First is the right ends. Um, if you make a lot of wise choices in your life, but then you find out you're living for the wrong thing, well, that that, that was a lot of foolishness. Um, you know, I think of even people in the world that are brilliant with their business, um, make all sorts of money, and you know they lose their family, and and they they get divorced, and all these terrible things happen, and you think, well, they they really made wise choices in this one area of their life. Um, but at the end of it, they found out, you know, as the saying goes, they had their ladder up against the wrong building. They got to the top, but it, it wasn't something worth living for. So God always acts towards the wisest ends. Everything that he does is for the right goals. But wisdom is also not just choosing the right goals, but the best ways to accomplish those goals. Uh, A.W. Tozer writes, not only could his acts not be better done, a better way to do them could not be imagined. An infinitely wise God must work in a manner not to be improved upon by finite creatures. So God's wisdom is seen in creation, redemption, and then lastly, God's wisdom is seen in the results of following 
his will. In other words, we can know that God is wise because as we live in accordance with his principles in Scripture, uh, society tends to operate better. We can see the wisdom in the fruits of obeying God's word. Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And so we can see the wisdom of God in the good results of obeying his principles. I've pointed out before that if you look at the countries of the world with respect to their religious identities, you can see this. You can see the wisdom of God's laws. Um, if you look at countries around the globe that are predominantly Protestant, um, and then you look at countries that are predominantly Catholic, and then those that are predominantly secular, uh, you're basically looking at first, second, and third world countries in that order. Um, there is just a practical wisdom and in, in human flourishing when a nation chooses to abide by God's principles. And of course, America is the greatest example of that. We were founded, we're straying from it quickly, but we were founded on very Protestant uh, principles. In fact, America essentially was the land that the Reformation in Europe filled. They were fleeing persecution from the Catholic Church. They came to America, founded um, in, in large part a Protestant nation, uh, and, it, and it quickly became the most powerful nation on earth. And so those are just examples of how God's wisdom can be seen in the, uh, in the good results of keeping his word. Deuteronomy 4.6, this is a point Moses made to the nation of Israel. It says, keep them and do them, referring to God's principles. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there? that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And so he's saying there, if you live according to the principles of God's word, uh, the other nations will look at you and say, wow, they have a wisdom. Uh, their society just functions better. And so God's wisdom is seen in obedience to his words. God's wisdom is seen in creation, in redemption, and in the results of keeping his command. So what it means for God's, uh, God to be all wise is that God always acts towards the wisest ends and through the wisest means. And God's omnisapience is built upon uh, the goodness of his character and the limitlessness of his knowledge. God being all wise also means that he is the source of wisdom. Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So by knowing God, we can acquire wisdom. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. And so there you see, by keeping God's laws, we are following wisdom. And then lastly, we acquire God's wisdom through prayer. James 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So the omnisapience or wisdom of God should cause us, uh, first of all, to have confidence in his actions. 
We don't need to question if what God is doing is best because everything that he does is always towards the best goals and through the wisest means to accomplish those goals. This reality should also be an incentive for us to obey his word. Knowing that the all-wise God wrote these words we have in Scripture should cause us to have a greater desire to obey them and reap the benefits of living according to the wisdom of God. And then finally, the wisdom of God should lead us to trust in his answers to our prayers. Uh, Stephen Charnock pointed to this as evidence that sometimes we don't believe in the wisdom of God. He said, when we pray for a thing without a due submission to God's will, as if we were his counselors, yea, his tutors, and not his subjects, and God were bound to follow our humors and be swayed according to the judgment of our ignorance. Uh, such a descriptive way of, uh, of how some of us pray, that we almost like we think we know better than God, and so we need to uh, convince him that our, our plan is, is the best one. Uh, but like Sharnak points out here, trusting in God's wisdom, the fact that he is all wise, should lead to a submission to his will. It's not saying, obviously, that we don't pray for things, uh, but in all of our asking, we should have a, an attitude of submission that ultimately God knows best, even if what I think I'm praying for is best, uh, my, sense, my sensibility of that is fallible, and God's is not. And so ultimately we trust, uh, trust in his will. Questions on the omnisapience of God? Go ahead. Uh-huh. I'm not sure if I follow. I guess I'm not quite getting how that would be precise or accurate if you're not hitting the bullseye, but maybe I'm just missing. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, I think, let me tweak your analogy. Um, what I was trying to say is somebody can be really good at hitting the bullseye, but they're throwing at the wrong target. <laughs> okay, so um, somebody can be wise at, at something and make a lot of wise choices, but toward the wrong goal. Whereas God uh, uniquely works everything towards the right goals. Um, and... He, he uses the proper, the, you know, the, the best means to accomplish those best goals. So there's two aspects to wisdom. Okay. Right. Okay, I see. Right, that's one thing. That's another thing to think about with God's wisdom is balance. Um, the fact that he's not just working towards one priority in your life, right? So we think, well, God, everything would be better if I would just have this job. But God's balancing so much more than just our little, you know, we're very focused generally on like one thing at a time. At least I am. I guess I hear girls can have multiple priorities, but my brain doesn't work like that. Um, and so God has to balance, or, or he does balance everything that he's trying to accomplish in the universe, broadly speaking, but also with specificity. Um, so God... In other words, God's not just a deist kind of stepping back or running the big things in the world. Uh, he, you know, throughout the, the scriptures, we see that he is very much so involved in our personal lives. And he's, he's personally involved in the lives of every single human on earth. And so just to think about how much God has to balance there to accomplish the wisest ends for his glory and for our ultimate good and the good of others as well. Um, it's far beyond our, our comprehension. None of us could, could ever run the world like God does, obviously. Um, so anyways, any other questions on Omnisapiens? All right, we'll move on to omnipotence. God is omnipotent. This might be one you're a little bit more familiar with. Uh, Omnisapiens, I, I typed into Microsoft Word and it kept telling me it wasn't a word, um, but I Googled it, it is. I don't know, Microsoft's behind the ball, I guess. But omnipotence, God's omnipotence, Grudem defines means that God is able to do all his holy will. I don't know if that's the best definition. Um, omnipotence, the omnipotence of God often is just defined to, to simply say God can do anything, which I think is too broad. Um, there are things God can't do. We'll get to those later. But I understand that the sentiment behind it is that God is all-powerful, which I think is accurate. Um, Genesis 18, verse 10, the Lord said, this is God speaking to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And remember, they're both old. Um, now I'm trying to remember their ages. I think Sarah was 90 at the time. So the fact that God is telling her she's going to have a child is just ridiculous. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, a Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? 
The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the, the obvious implied answer there is no. God can do anything. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. Sarah shall have a son. Of course, we know the story that she did indeed have a son. So uh, God, nothing is too hard for the Lord. That phrase is found a few different times in the Old Testament where somebody challenges uh, something that God says he's going to do. Like uh, that, That's not possible. And God just responds by saying, is anything too hard for the Lord? Um, there is no limit to God's power in that sense. A similar story is in Luke chapter 1, where Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to have a son. And of course, Mary's a virgin. She's very confused. She says, how, how can this be? And Gabriel gives kind of a vague explanation, doesn't really explain it very well, just says, it's going to happen. Um, and in verse 37, finishes off by saying, for nothing will be impossible with God. So nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is too hard for God. Therefore, God can do anything. Sort of. Uh, let's look at a few exceptions. Uh, things that God cannot do. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he, God, remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Okay, so God cannot do anything that violates his character. God can't sin for instance, because to do so would be going against his nature. Hebrews 6.18 gets more specific, um, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So God cannot lie. He cannot do anything sinful. So instead of saying God can do anything, uh, it might be better to say God can do everything that he wills to do and is consistent with his character. So there's no limiting to God's power, but there are technically some things God cannot do. Uh, but it's not, it's, it's not because he is impotent and, uh, or unable to, uh, lacks the power to do something. It just violates his character. God, every action that God takes is consistent with all of his attributes. So God has the ability to do all that he's decided to do. That is the omnipotence of God. This does not include uh, logical impossibilities or absurdities. Sometimes somebody smart aleck will ask a question like, can God build a rock so big that he can't move it? You ever heard that one? Because um, you say, well, if he can't build a rock that big, then he's not all powerful. If he can, then he can't move it. He's not all powerful. Uh, that's just a dumb question. Uh, I don't even normally dignify that one with a response. Um, it's sort of like asking, can God make a round square? That's just a stupid question. It's, it's a logical absurdity. And it's not like, oh, gotcha. No, not really. That's not the point. Um, I heard somebody, somebody use the comparison, can God tell you the, the smell of purple or something? Um, that, that's basically what those questions are. It's trying to lock us into, well, God can't do everything because he can't do the logically absurd. That's, that's really not the point. God cannot do something that is logically impossible. He can't do something absurd, obviously. Some things are impossible because they're simply logically incoherent. But the fact that God can't do that is not a limiting of his power. It's just that that's a dumb question. <laughs> so some things are impossible for God to do because they violate his nature. Some things are impossible because they're just logically incoherent. Uh, Stephen Charnock says, Some things are impossible to the glorious perfections of God. God cannot do anything unbecoming his holiness and goodness. Anything unworthy of himself 
and against the perfections of his nature. Again, Charnock writes a little later, the scripture saith it is impossible for God to lie. We looked at that a minute ago. God cannot deny himself because of his faithfulness, as he cannot die because he is life itself, as he cannot deceive because he is goodness itself, as he cannot do an unwise action because he is wisdom itself. So he cannot speak a false word because he is truth itself. And so I think that makes sense, that God can't violate his character, but that's not a limiting of his power. God is all-powerful. He is able to do whatever he, in his perfect wisdom, has decided to do. God has every power which it is logically possible for him to have. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Omnipotence means that God has the power to do whatever he desires, and no one can stop him. And maybe that's another important point with the omnipotence of God, is that God has no rival. There's nobody that can in any way impede his progress. If he wants to do something, he's going to do it. Isaiah 46, verse 9, remember the former things of old? For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Whatever God desires to do, he can and will do, and nobody can stop him. This is something I've been trying to point out. Um, I think a corrective that we need in our Christian culture. The devil is not... Uh, an equal entity with God. The devil is nowhere near God's power. Um, the devil cannot threaten any of God's purposes. We, we see this clearly in Scripture. Job is the best example where Satan has to come crawling to God, asking permission to tempt Job. And, and God tells him, sure, you can tempt him, but here are the parameters. Right? It's not like Satan is some uh, free agent just kind of doing whatever he wants to do, and God is really threatened, and they're kind of doing battle like cosmic enemies. Well, sort of, but Satan is a defeated foe. There is no, uh, no comparison between the power of Satan and the power of God. So anyway, a few practical applications of omnipotence. First, God's omnipotence should lead us to trust his promises will be accomplished. Uh, power is required to keep a promise. Sometimes we make promises, and we're not lying. We are fully intending to do it, and then something happens. <laughs> right? Something changes, some circumstance and suddenly we lack the, the money or whatever. For whatever reason, we cannot do what we promise to do. This never happens with God. Uh, God can and will accomplish all of his promises. Number one, because he sees every future obstacle. Right. So we're back to omniscience. You see how these kind of build on one another. Uh, God sees every possible future obstacle. So when he makes a promise, he makes it with full knowledge of exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, so nothing can come up out of nowhere and keep him from being able to keep his promise. And then secondly, he has all of the power needed to overcome whatever obstacle is in the way to accomplish those things. And so we can trust when God promises something that it will take place. Stephen Charnock again uh, writes on this in specifically about our confidence in not losing our salvation. My father is greater than all. He's quoting there from John 10. None is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Our keeping is not in our own weak hands, but in the hands of him who is mighty to save. 
And so God's omnipotence is the grounds for our confidence, our assurance of salvation, the fact that God is going to keep us and not, uh, you know, when we sin or when we do something, whatever, we're not going to lose our salvation because ultimately our, our salvation is not up to us maintaining that. It, we are in God's hand. God's power is keeping us. God's omnipotence is also the grounds for our confidence in the success of his church. Matthew 16, verse 8, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, regardless of what the state of the church appears to be today, the power of God that created the world, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, will build Christ's church. Uh, many people have tried to destroy the church throughout uh, church history and have been unsuccessful. And if you're a Christian today, it's easy for us to look at our, our country and specifically the trajectory that we see around us and to feel very discouraged at the state of the gospel in America. But if we look to God and to his omnipotence, we can be assured that he will continue giving life to those in darkness and all who have been appointed to eternal life will believe. God's omnipotence then should lead to humility, submission, and trust. One final text, Ephesians 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all, all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Any questions on omnipotence? We've got a couple of minutes before we have to close. Go ahead. Okay. Right. Yeah, it is amazing how far, I'm going to talk about this some in the next hour, how far our Christian culture strays from Scripture. Um, but yeah, as far as Satan goes, I think one of the reasons we tend to think that is it's hard for us to understand why Satan would exist, why Satan would do the evil that he does if he's not outside of God's control. That's kind of our filler explanation. Well, uh, the reason there's evil in the world, it's not God's fault. It's, uh, it's, it's Satan, and God can't do anything about it. Well, no. Uh, God could if he chose to. I mean, in, in Revelation, he binds Satan for a thousand years and keeps him from acting. Why doesn't he do that now? Well, apparently, it's not because he doesn't have the power to. It's because he, for whatever reason, his purposes is that Satan would do what he's doing right now. 
And that's beyond our, you know, we are from our little vantage point, we can't understand all of those things. But uh, Satan is not a, a rival to God's power in any sense. He is on a leash. Uh, God utilizes him. Um, and like Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. Um, and so, and we see that time and time again throughout Scripture, where where God utilizes Satan to accomplish His purposes. Um, so we, I think, to me anyway, that's kind of the reasoning I think for why we tend to view Satan as just as powerful, almost as powerful as God, is because it kind of dismisses that question very quickly, like, well, it's not God's fault. Um, no, God, God has purposes for even even the evil that exists in our world.